are there certain things in your family that whenever they come up, they create a either negative or positive uh, emotional response? I'll give you some examples of this because in our family, there are certain examples of this. And so, for example, think about the senses, okay? Think about sounds. There are certain sounds that if people make, it will create an emotional response inside of you. One of those is Josh. Uh, Our son Josh, whenever he hears somebody hugging the porcelain pony, hurling up cookies, whatever other metaphors you want to put in there for that, he has this immediate gag reflex. He could be in the other room, but he hears it and he has a gag reflex himself. Maybe you're that kind of person who when you hear that sound, you go into that kind of thing, uh, that kind of emotional response. Smells. Uh, it creates, again, positive or negative. When Lori pulls laundry out of the dryer and she smells it, if she smells, maybe maybe y'all don't do this, but sometimes you leave it in the washer a little long and it's in the hot summer months and it comes out a little musky, I just take it and put it in the dryer and move on. She takes it out and smells it and she will run it all the way back through the cycle. Any others like that? Are you, okay, good. All right, I can smell it, shake it out, put some perfume, put some Axe on it and you're, you're, you're good to go. Um, uh, there's, there's other things. Taste. Uh, uh, I, uh, anybody like pumpkin spice? Uh, all right. It's, it's out there right now. If you don't know, it's in everything. You can get it in anything you want to consume. Uh, I'm actually, don't judge me. I'm a pumpkin spice kind of guy. Uh, I don't get the coffees, but I, but you can get it in anything you want. It's, it's out there. Uh, it may be in toothpaste for all I know, but, uh, uh, you can taste pumpkin spice as much as you want this time of year. I think I like it as much because it's pointing to the fall. We're getting out of the summer heat months, maybe, but maybe see things so again, sight, touch, smell, whatever. If you see certain things, Jordan, if she sees a bee a mile away, she will drop or throw whatever it is she's in her hand and run in the other direction. If she hears that bee sound, she will jump and run. Our fear is now with grandkids that she's going to throw James or Selah at the bee and run in the other direction. So we don't know exactly how that's going to work out uh, exactly yet. But there are certain things you hear, you see, you touch, you taste, and it creates positive or negative. I'm going to give you a word today. That is kind of a, kind of the benchmark word that is going to create in different people different responses. Okay. So I'm just going to say that. Hopefully no gag reflexes on this, but I'm going to give you this word and it's going to create for some an energy of excitement. They're going to lean in on this word. They're going to say, I want to hear more about this. There's going to be others that are going to hear this word and they're going to, they're going to get sick of their stomach. And it's the word sustainability. It's one of those words that's out there right now that you hear it in every business and schools and wherever. And it's this idea of how can we make things good today, make good decisions today that will have good effects into the future. Again, think about it. You think about it from an environmental point of view. And I'm not going to go political on on us here, but just think about we hear that word and it creates different emotions or feelings. Some people like it, lean in on it. Uh, some people get on their heels and lean back on it and want to move away from it. I want you today to lean in on it. I want you to lean in on it, not from an environmental point of view, though that could certainly play in there, but from your personal point of view. Here's what my definition, again, there's other definitions out there for sustainability. Here's my definition. Doing what is best for the life that is in me and around me 
with consideration for the lives that will follow me. My definition, you can make it and make it better than that, but it's literally making decisions about my life today that is actually with a lens towards the future, knowing that there's lives that will be impacted in the future with the decisions that I make today. And so think about it like that as we go into Genesis chapter 33. You'll not find the word sustainability in Genesis chapter 33, but I do think you find a concept here lived out in a guy named Jacob. And we've been looking at this guy for several weeks. We'll finish it up today and we'll kind of move into a new series of messages uh, next week. And I want to invite you certainly back for that. But Jacob, man, he's lived a life. He's lived a life of deception. He, his name means deception. It's been this brokenness that he has, that he has had to plow through, whether it's, he's been trained in deception and he was and he's experienced deception and he did and he lived it out. It was this, this again, a broken past. And last week we talked about this wrestling match with God. It was kind of like uh, this brawler Jacob all night long holds God off and wrestles with God. God does a karate kid move on him, sweeps the leg, and he takes him down. And in that experience, it becomes goes from resistance to responding. And I want to challenge all of you today, if you've been fighting against God, God's been prompting you, but you can't, you can't yield to that voice. Whatever that voice is calling you to do, your next step of obedience, please stop resisting. Stop resisting. Lean in. Know that he has absolutely the best uh, in, in, in store for you. But he was living an unsustainable life. Jacob was living an unsustainable life. He was making decisions today that years later, it would impact him and his generations that would follow. In fact, we're going to see in the future that there's going to even be more deception. And I believe it's because of the decisions that he made back here. This is the life that you can sum up his life when he comes to this moment in time. In Genesis chapter 32, when it says, this is that unsustainable life. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He was overwhelmed. He was afraid of life, afraid of the future, afraid of what would happen in the, in the next chapter of his life. Afraid, afraid, afraid. But he was also living under this tremendous load of stress and anxiety. <laughs> Again, don't show your hands on this one may be describing some of y'all in the room right now. An unsustainable life. If that's the, the measure of 24-7, 365 days of your life, my friends, that's unsustainable. You can't keep living like that. That's a load that you weren't meant to live. So please hear the message today that I want to help move us all to a more sustainable life. Whenever you look at the story of Jacob and you look at his life, there's this section of, of Scripture where I want to say that it was his life before God. It wasn't his life before he knew about God, but it was his life before his relationship with God. Now, listen to that because that may apply to some of y'all in this room. Some of y'all have grown up in church. You went to church like I did nine months before you were even born. Your parents took you to church. That's all you know is growing up in church. You know all about God. You could even pass some Sunday school tests. But you don't have a relationship with God. And that's the life that Jacob lived. He grew up with his grandfather being Abraham, his father being Isaac. But yet, I believe that there's a season and a good chunk of, of the story of Genesis is life without God. And then he has this encounter with God. 
Time slows down in the story. Eight hours is, is expressed in 11 different verses, and that's last week's message. Eight, now again, remember from weeks back, when, 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 when narratives slow down the time, and they expand it out, they, they really want you to get into the details of it. In 11 verses, he covers eight hours. That's slowing down time. There's times in the scripture where they'll give decades and centuries in one verse. So you can see he slows it down. This is when he meets God. This is when he encounters God. And again, last week's message. But what about his life after that? His life of walking with God. That's where we pick it up today. And I want you to see, there will be a dramatic change in his life. A tremendous change between his life before God, his encounter with God, and his life after God. There will be this beautiful change that will take place and transpire in his life. In Genesis 32, verse 30, this is what it says to describe his new verse. Verse 7 was his old verse. This is his new verse. I have seen God face to face. I've experienced him. I've seen him. I've encountered him. And what did he do? He delivered me. Now that's important because that word right there in the Hebrew language is the same word that in other times and places in scripture is, is translated salvation. In fact, if you go to in your own time, Psalm chapter 51, verse 10, you'll find where David is praying, Oh God of my salvation. The same verse. The word delivered and the word salvation go hand in hand. And so what happens is that he has experienced God face to face. He has been delivered. He has been saved. And now what happens after this in chapter 33, because this is chapter 32, what happens after this is going to be his story, which I hope is your story. So he literally lives two lives, his life before God, his life after he encounters God. And I hope you have a story like that. Where you can say, hey, my life was like this. I knew about God, but I didn't know God. And now I know God. And this is the change that's happened in my life because of that. And this is what we see in the rest of his story. As he, what happens in this, in this story, and I mentioned these last week, this new life is not just a, he gets a home in glory. This is a new life right here and now. He's given a new name. And again, this is last week's message. He's given a new name and new character. And again, the Bible talks about in the New Testament where we are given a new creation. We're new creations in Christ. The old is gone and the new has begun. That's the beauty of it. New name, new character is what he gets. In, in fact, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be celebrating that through baptism. This is why I can't make my kids be baptized. I can't make you be baptized. You choose to be baptized because you have entered into a relationship with God Almighty. And you're declaring it in baptism. So be here on the 29th because that will be a day where we will mark some people's lives when their life in, it was marked by their relationship with God. And if you have never had that happen in your life, I invite you to be a part. All you have to do is sign up and then we'll reach out to you. But here, let's go on. Number two. He exclusively worships God. The most high God. Okay? Up until this point, he was a pluralist. He believed in multiple gods. How do I know that? Because in Scripture, it refers to him building an altar to the God of Nahor. And that's in chapter 
uh, 31 verse 53, you can find that where he's actually building a God to a, an altar to Abraham. And he's also building a God, an altar to, to Nahor. He's a pluralist. He believes that there are many ways to God, but you'll find for the rest of the story of Jacob, he's building altars, but he's only building one altar to one God. It is the most high God. And what happens when you encounter Jesus Christ, when you encounter that pre-incarnate Christ, your life is so changed and you realize that there is only one God. You don't need multiples of gods. You only need one God, and that is Jesus Christ. And so he experiences that. But then you also go on, and you can see that he was a maker of peace and reconciliation with the past. And again, that's what happens in this passage today, and we'll get there in a moment. But also, he lives a sustainable life. I want you to just look at those right there. He lives a sustainable life. Go ahead and throw that one up there, guys. When you look at those right there, I want you to just zero in on those. Because whenever I was being trained in how to invite people to follow Jesus, this was the question that I would ask. I was trained in so many different forms. Was if you die today, do you know for certain that you'll go to heaven when you die? Everything about that question is right and good, but it's not complete. Because yes, salvation is futuristic, but also salvation is right here and now. I can live in salvation. As, as Jacob said, I have been delivered. I am living in salvation. I'm not just looking forward to salvation. And what does that salvation look like? Well, it looks like this. You get a new name and a new character. You understand who the most high God is. You become a reconciler of brokenness and broken past. And you live a sustainable life. Now, folks, I, I, can, I can sell you a bill of goods... I can tell you I've got some beautiful swamp land in Florida and try to sell it to you. But right there is why you should follow Jesus. Right there is what I get to live in, you get to live in, we all get to live in whenever we have a relationship with the God of the universe. So our life before God, our, our encounter with God, and then your life after that. What does that look like? That's your story. What's your story? Do you have that? You have those markers in your life. When you look at Jacob's life, basically you see a man who's strung out on stress and regret. Now, don't raise your hand, but how many of that just described you? You see a a man who encounters God. And I said it last week, I believe it's the pre-incarnate Christ. It's Jesus coming to this earth in the flesh, before he comes uh, on the Christmas story, if you will. He encounters God. And then he lives with humility and mastery. There's something about that sustainable life that is beautiful. And that's what I want to point out today. What does this sustainable life look like, feel like, smell like, taste like, sound like? One is humility. You learn to live in peace with people. There's just something that comes out of you whenever you're walking in the freshness of a relationship with the God of the universe, that you are more humble. We live in a culture right now where we are more consumed with our rights than we are our responsibility. We are more consumed with what is my right than what is my responsibility to humanity. 
And I want you to notice in the life of Jacob that he doesn't live based on his rights. He takes a much more humble posture. What can I do for you? What are your needs? Not what are my needs, my rights. What's in it for me? But what are your needs? What are, well, how can I serve you? The story unfolds whenever you begin to see Jacob again. He's picking up his bags and he's moving on and he's going to run into Esau. And Esau 20 years ago wanted to kill him. He doesn't know what it's going to be like when he encounters Esau. That's what's caused a lot of the distress and the anxiety in his life. And he's going to encounter him. But I want you to notice the posture that he takes. Jacob is now the rightful patriarch. Esau is to report to Jacob, not Jacob to Esau. But even though he has the position of authority, why does he have the position of authority? Because he has the birthright that that, that, that Esau sold him for a cup of soup. Because he stole and ripped off the, the blessing from the father. So he is now the patriarch of the family and not Esau. But whenever he comes near Esau and they encounter each other for the first time, notice the response of the patriarch to the one who is lesser than him. He takes a posture of humility. Chapter 33, let's look at verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. Can you, can you feel the anticipation of that moment? 400 men coming. He's charging horses. I don't know. They're coming. I mean, you just, I can feel the fear in him. 400 men. So he divided his children, Leah and Rachel, and the two female servants. And he put servants and his children in front of Leah and, and his children and Rachel and Joseph. Last of all. And he himself went on before them, got in front of the whole family, the whole crew. And what does he do? He asserts his rights and he says, listen, I'm now the firstborn son. I'm now the one who holds the blessing. I'm now the one who who who, who has the, 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 the just position. I'm now the patriarch. You bow down to me. Now, what does he do? He takes a position of humility. And he bows down four, five, six, seven times to communicate that even though I may be the more powerful one, even though I might be the rightful patriarch in this whole scheme of things, I am going to bow down to you. He does it in a position, in a, a statement of humility. Go down to chapter, same chapter, go down to verse 10. So Jacob said, he's speaking now to his brother, and Jacob said, no, please, if I found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. So he's basically going to offer him peace offering, whatever you want to call it. He offers him this gift. Esau says, no, thank you. I'm good. He says, no, no, no. I want you to take this gift. Again, notice his posture of humility and trying to reconcile. Please accept my blessing. Don't miss that. He stole the blessing the last time that word was used. He stole it, and now he's giving it to his brother. That is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me. When you've encountered the grace of God, all of a sudden, your positional authority and rights become far less important, and humility becomes the posture of your life. 
sustainable life is a life of humility. Whenever I will be the person, even though I'm the patriarch, I step down, I bow down, I will show myself as the humble one in the relationship. And he offers back to his brother what he stole from his brother. Here's the thing about arrogance. And you can talk, take this to a marriage. You can take this to the job. You can take this anywhere you want to take it. Arrogance says you come to make a point. I got a point to make and you're going to listen to it. Humility says you come to make peace. It's not my point. It's not my right. It's not my, no, I'd rather make peace. It's not me being right, you being wrong. It's about making peace. What does Jesus say whenever he gives us this example? He lives this out in in Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. For why? They're going to be called the sons of God. So literally, and before that, he talks about meekness. Before that. So you got humility leading into, into peacemaking. That's just the way it is. It always takes two for reconciliation. I understand that. It always takes two for reconciliation, but it only takes one to initiate reconciliation. What if you became the first person to step forward and offer peace? When Jesus was giving another on, on further on in the mass, uh, Matthew chapter 5, he says, if you offering a gift on the altar, remember that your brother has something against you. You're to pray for your brother that God would send a thousand camel fleas into his armpits. No. You're to pray. No. You're to get up. You're to leave your gift before and go and first be reconciled to your brother then come and offer. He gives us imperative command after imperative command. You're to leave. You're to go. You're to to be reconciled, and then you come. Hey, wait, wait, you don't know who I have an angst against, and you don't know the problem and the tension and the years, and again, it takes one to initiate reconciliation, but it takes two to reconcile. Absolutely, that is the truth. So what if I cannot reconcile? Well, there are people in this world you cannot be reconciled to. But before you throw that in, just remember, have you done everything you can do to be reconciled to that person? Scripture talks about a person who stirs up division after warning them once or twice, have nothing to do more to do with them. Why? Because knowing such a person is wrapped up in sinful and self-condemned. So there comes a point where you've got to back off. The Bible tells us so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. All right? Live peaceably with all in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. So there's a, there's, I need to do everything I can do to be at peace, to find reconciliation. And that starts when I come in a spirit of humility. Lori and I love each other passionately. But when you have two passionate people, we also can fight passionately, argue passionately. I can't tell you the number of times we've had this argument, these arguments. And she goes in her place, I go in my space, and we are separate in different rooms. And I'm replaying it in my mind, and there's this battle of my mind. Because none of us, we, we just didn't land anywhere safe or good. Who's going to be the first one to initiate peace? Well, I got a point to make. Well, when, when they come, when she comes in and she says she's sorry for what this and that and she understands, then I'm going to be reconciled. Back up. 
position of humility is I am going to become the peacemaker. And that's not easy, but that's exactly what Jesus did. When we were still broken and lost and disenfranchised from him, what does he do? Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, you were not only separated, but you were against God. You were actually opposed to God, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his own flesh by his death. He did all of that while we were still broken in our sins in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach. We, when we take the humble posture and we become the peacemaker, we live the gospel. Sustainable life is whenever you live a humble life. Number two is the mastery. Living sustainable life is when I'm living intentionally with margin. the best book I read in 2020, and you ought to pay attention to this because the best book I read in 2020 in that hot dumpster fire of 2020 was a book by John Eldridge. It is Get Your Life Back. Notice the subtitle, Everyday Practices for a World Gone Mad. He wrote that before 2020. That was the best book I've read in 2020. So that's my top of my list. That's my recommendation for you in 2021. Get Your Life Back. He had me at that title. Because sometimes you feel like you don't have your life. Why? Because the world has your life. Because Big Blue has your life. Because kids have your life. Because schedules have your life. Because the debt has your life. And that is how we live. Well, Jacob lives differently after he encounters God. He lives at a different rhythm. He lives at a different pace. He lives at a different cadence. Esau, still hard moving, fast moving. So if you notice there in, in that passage, they, they had this encounter between the two. Esau's there. Jacob's there. They're being reconciled, giving back the blessing that he stole from him. So it's this beautiful transaction that happens. But they're not home yet. They're not at Shechem yet. That's home. They're not home yet. So we got to go home now. So what does Esau do? He says, let's get on our horses and let's ride. It's time to go. And he's ready to go. And he's ready to go fast. That's Esau. In fact, this is the way it says it in chapter 12, or chapter, uh, verse 12. It says, then Esau said, let us journey on and I will go on ahead of you. I mean, I'm going to go so fast. You're going to be seeing the dust of my feet. Hey, but you follow me and I'm going to get us there. But Jacob said to him, my Lord, those the children are frail. The nursing flocks and herds are care for me, are, 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 are care to me, are I care to me. If they're driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant. Again, humble posture. This statement. I will lead on slowly at a pace of the livestock that are ahead of me. At a pace of the children until I come. To my Lord and Seer. We live in a world called Fast and Furious. We make movie media giants called Fast and Furious. That, that is the style in which the world in which we live. 
But I want to show you a life of sustainability is a life that slows it down, lives at a different cadence, in a different rhythm, in a, in a different pace of life. And I want you to see a beautiful picture here as this lives out. And this is what, when I was reading Get Your Life Back, I was reading that in June of 20. At the same time, I was reading this passage. I literally pulled out my journal from last summer and said, I was reading these two books at the same time. I was learning how to live a more sustainable life through Jacob. At the same time, I'm reading this John Eldridge book. Here's four tips, real quickly, four tips on how to avoid the fast and furious life. And this happens because you have a relationship with God. Number one, take control before you're being controlled. Esau said, let's go. Let's move. We got places to go, people to see. Get things to get done. He said, wait, wait, wait. He stops it. Now, he could have said, okay, brother, you're the, you're the, you're the leader. I'm the follower. I'm just going to go with you, and you're gonna go, we're going to go at your pace. And hopefully we all hang on. But he stops. He says, no, 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 no. I can't. Why? Because if they are driven, driven. Now, I have to tell you, again, this is a personal testimony for me because I'm like, I'm a driven person. I've read a book called Ordering Your Private World by Gordon MacDonald. I highly recommend that one as well because I've read it seven to eight times because I find myself in this driven state so often. He tells a story in a chapter where he literally talks about um, seven to eight different um, driven factors that people that are driven, that's how they live their life. And and he tells the story of, uh, of a boy who's nine years old playing soccer and scores a goal. Dad's watching the match from the sidelines. And at the end of the game, boy comes running up to dad, says, Dad, I scored. I scored. And the dad said this. Gordon said he heard it. He says, yeah, I also saw that you missed two other times. See, and then Gordon says this. He says, when you are in a state of drivenness, the list of accomplishments never get long enough. And some of us in our driven state will literally never appreciate the simple scoring of goals because you'll think of all the other goals you missed. Number two, find your limits or your limits will find you. Find your limits or your limits will find you. Listen, limits are a gift from God. Because now you know how far you can go. So embrace the limits that come up on on you. What does Jacob say? He says, my flocks will die. He knew he was so in touch with his sheep and his cattle and his goats. He was so in touch with them. He was like the the, the dog whisperer to sheep, the dog whisperer to cattle. He he, he was like, "I, I know that if I do this, it will kill them. They will die. Do you know the limits? Because if you don't know your limits, burnout, crashing and burning, moral failures, things like that happen. We don't live a life of limits. Paul Hawken, who's an environmentalist who's written a lot on sustainability, makes this statement and it applies to our own lives as well. The first rule of sustainability is to align with natural forces or at least not try to defy them. What if we said, okay, these are my limits. 
I'm stopping here. He knew the limits of the people he was leading. Different people lead differently. Different people go at different paces. Learning your limits and the people you're leading is important. Number three, slow down before you break down. Slow down before you break down. Or in the words of the great philosopher Ice Cube, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. John Mark Comer has written a great book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. He tells the story of how the title came to be. Of John Ortberg, pastor, was being mentored by Dallas Willard, a philosopher, a spiritual formation thinker, probably one of the best in the 20th century, gone to be with Jesus now. But John is in the prime of his career. He's, he's living in Chicago. He's rising to the top. He's... he's Got books coming out. He's a pastor. He's a, of this, probably the largest church in America at the time. And he's one of the pastors, teaching pastors there. And he's just like, I can't get enough. I can't do enough. I'm going home exhausted and tired and beat down and I, I'm never satisfied. So he talks to his mentor that mentored him for 20 years. And he said, um, I, I need to know how to fix this, Dallas. And after a long pause, uh, Willard said this. He said, hurry is the greatest enemy of our spiritual life. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Oh, that's good. He wrote it down. He's thinking on it. He's thinking about the things that he's been hurrying through. And then he asks him, what else? What's number two? Willard pauses and he said, there's no number two. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry. We get so fast and furious in this world. And I want to show you the verse that knocked me on my derriere when I read this in June of last year. Verse 14. What does he say? I will lead on slowly. I, I, he makes a commitment. I will. It's not I'm going to think about it. I'm going to pray about it. I will. I will. I will lead. He's not forfeiting his position. He's not giving up. He's going to continue to lead. I will lead on. Where's God calling me? Where's God calling us? Where are we supposed to go? Slowly. Some of you take shortcuts when you need to slow down. Jacob's life was forever changed. Here's a life principle for you. If you want to go fast, like Jacob or like Esau, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. You can only go as fast as the people you're leading. If you're going faster than them to try, hey, catch up, keep up, you might be going too fast. 
And this is a tension you're going to have to manage. This is my message to Mike McDaniel. If you know me at all, this is Mike's message to Mike McDaniel. You just get to listen to what God has said to me. Number four, and I'm finished. Live and leave your legacy. What's your legacy? What What do you want it to be? We all have that pie in the sky. But how you live it, that's going to be what you're going to leave. We find out next in the words of, of this narrative is Jake is a different guy. He goes from pluralism to one clear most high God, period. And he starts building altars to this one God. He starts giving credit to God for his children in chapter 33, verse 5. He starts giving credit to God for, for his, uh, his life in chapter 33, verse 10. He, he starts giving, uh, credit to God for his property, his successes in life in chapter 33, verse 10. You start seeing a total change of reference and then you come down and you, and you find in chapter, uh, in verse 18, it says this, And Jacob uh, came safely to the city of Shechem. And by the way, he stopped off one other place, built a house, all that kind of stuff. He was going so slow. In which he, in the land of Canaan, in his way to, uh, from Padim Aram, which that's where he got his wife, so that's where he was living for 20 years. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor and Shechem's father, uh, he, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the pieces of land on which he pitched his tent. Now, I got to say this, even though I don't have time to say this. When you look at Israel and you see the contested land, I can point to three times, two of those in Genesis, where the Hebrew people were buying land. They weren't just taking the land. So when they go back in the conquest, they're just going back to the land that they had a transaction on. They're taking the land that they bought. He bought land, and there he erected an altar called El Elok Israel, the God of Israel. What's his new name? Israel. God is my God, and I'm building an altar here at Shechem. First person to build an altar at Shechem to the Most High God was Abraham. He is living out the legacy that was lived before him. One last phrase, and i got to say it. And this is what I hope is true of your life. Jacob came safely. You might get where you're going successfully, but will you get there safely? And that word safely, I looked it up as well. These are all the different ways it's used. They arrived intact. They arrived untouched. They arise complete. They arrive perfect, whole, undivided. If you're going so fast it's causing division, you might be going too fast. You might need to be like I need to be. I will lead on slowly. Would you, would you pray with me? A life in Christ is a life that brings humility. It's a life that brings sustainability. When you're able to master your life instead of being mastered by life, that's a life in Jesus. Do you know it? Every Sunday we have a space in our services. We plan it. We pray over it. 
of just space for you to listen to God. We're going to give you that space right here, right now. Don't rush. Listen to the still, small voice of God. Where is He calling you? What's He calling you to? What's He calling you from? Maybe He's calling you to follow Him. Give your life to Him. Father God, in this space, in this time, speak. We are listening. 